Well, friends, please direct your attention with me to Psalm 39. Psalm 39 will be our sermon text this morning. We were in Psalm 39 last week, and as I said last week, we were just doing three verses out of there, and we're looking at the whole psalm this time. So, Psalm 39, I'll read it, I'll ask for God's blessing on our time, and go from there. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words that you've revealed to us by your spirit through a human author. We know that they're trustworthy words, they're powerful words, words by which you reveal your character and your salvation, words by which you instruct your covenant people in having a relationship with you of trust and dependence. We pray that we would have hearts that are eager to hear from you, that you would give us all softness of heart and give us illumination in our minds to see your glory, especially as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. As we look to the pages of Scripture and the words you've revealed, give me clarity, give me faithfulness in my teaching and proclamation, and please uh, work by your word in our hearts to do the work for each of us that you know has to be done for those who may need to be comforted, those who may need to be convicted, those who may need to be saved who don't yet know Christ. We pray you'd shepherd souls for our good in Christ, for our, and for our eternal good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. How was everyone's new year? I hope you celebrated. I hope you had some time to reflect it on the year that had passed and to reflect on the year ahead. I hope you ate some good food, maybe watched some good football, spent some time with loved ones. Now, did anyone get a visit from that little monster, existential angst, that we talked about last week? Did anyone 
get a rush of panic about the relentless speed with which time is rushing by. If you were with us last week, I hope our meditation from Psalm 39 verses 4 to 6 helped to equip you to stare into that yawning void and say, yes, I am a mere vapor. Yes, my time is going very, very quickly. There's nothing I can do about that. But my timeless and unchanging God has made a covenant with me in Christ. And he's assured me of resurrection and eternal glory because I'm united to Jesus. So, yes, time is racing by, but bring it on. I hope you are able to say that if, if those thoughts occurred to you in this last week. Maybe that's still something you're dealing with. Last week, as I said, we looked at verses 4 to 6. It's kind of the engine of the psalm that drives the whole thing. And we looked at that in isolation. And this week, we're putting it back sort of into the vehicle. We're looking at the whole thing. How does this meditation on human weakness and transience, how fleeting we are before God, how does that fit into this broader situation of what's going on in this psalm? And as I said last week, then the focus was on reflection. And this week, the focus is on resolution. So last week, we are more looking at uh, the world, looking around at the world and our place in it, what we are as creatures in this world. And this week, we're going to get tools for enduring a certain kind of difficult experience that every believer is going to face at some point in 2024. How will we resolve to live when God disciplines us for sin by bringing afflictions upon us? How will we resolve to live when God disciplines us for our sin by bringing afflictions upon us? Now, when I speak about resolution, the point is not that we would just steel ourselves with our natural reserves of grit and willpower. That's not what I'm talking about by resolution or resolve. I speak of resolution because there are certain decisions that we need to make beforehand, before the live fire begins. This is not something to figure out while it's happening. These are things to resolve beforehand. Resolution means that we've considered what's ahead and we've made some decisions beforehand. Think about some of the typical New Year's resolutions. Maybe some of you have made these. Maybe some of you are big subscribers to these. Some of you don't, don't like them, don't have time for them, they always fail. But whatever the case, think about resolutions. What is the point of making New Year's resolutions? Or any time in the year. It's to simplify all the little daily choices that are coming. If you've decided that you're going to work out four times a week in 2024, then what you're doing is you're deciding beforehand so that every week and every day that comes, you have a framework that will guide your little choices. And this is how resolutions work, all kinds of resolutions, devotional practices, diet, media consumption, sleep, relational issues, personal habits. It's all about making some choices beforehand that will guide the little later choices. And so the first Sunday of this year, I'm not commending New Year's resolutions to you. That's not the point of this. But I'm using them as an analogy for the kind of resolved decision-making that this psalm models for us. So that when discipline gets hot in our lives, we're not only then left trying to figure out how we're going to handle it. There are certain commitments that can precede these hard times. So this is the main question that will drive our inquiry into this scripture, into God's word here. How do the godly respond to divine discipline? How do the godly respond to divine discipline? And the answers we'll see are four. Four ways 
in Psalm 39 that the godly respond to divine discipline. The first one is in verses 1 to 3. Guard your tongue and cry out to God. Verses 1 to 3. Guard your tongue and cry out to God. I'll read those verses again. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. Probably, by the way, to no avail. What it says very literally in Hebrew is from good. And probably a better translation is some translations do it is I held my peace even from speaking good. I didn't say anything, good or bad. Going on and reading. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now, many of the psalms like this one have a kind of implied narrative underneath them. There's kind of a story. You may not even realize you're doing this, but there's kind of a story that we're reconstructing as we read regarding some kind of life situation that this psalm is describing and kind of rising out of. Now, sometimes the narrative is fairly plain and it's really easy to tell kind of how the psalm is commenting on events. Psalm 32 is an example. I think it's pretty plain how reading the psalm, like what's going on in life and what arose, uh, from what situation this psalm arose. In this case, I would say this is a psalm where it's a little bit more confusing. Uh, Maybe you caught that as we read through and you're thinking, what's going on? Why is the psalmist silent? Uh, Why doesn't he want to talk? What do the wicked have to do with it? The best way I can explain it is this. You've probably seen movies that open with a climactic moment of action. And suddenly, the, the benefit is you're hooked. Like right from second one, you're, you're, you're interested, you're drawn in. But you have no context. You're like, why is this guy chasing this guy? I don't know, but it's exciting. I want to see what's happening. You don't know why this is happening. And usually they'll give you a few minutes of that and then stop. And what do they do? They'll go back and they'll give you the whole narrative of events that led you to that moment. Um, and that's sort of the, the strategy for kind of getting you into the story. I think that that's what the psalmist is kind of doing here. We kind of get parachuted into a really tense moment, a tense situation in verse 1. We're a little bit disoriented. Something about the, the presence of the wicked, somebody wanting to say something but, but holding himself back, trying really hard not to speak. So there's obvious questions that come up in our minds. What's happening? How do we get here? And, and I think the tension finds a little bit of resolution as we go on in the psalm. And really beginning in verse 7, we get some of the story backfilled a little bit. So really focusing, just looking for now, in verses 7 to 11, what we see is that David the psalmist is somehow, we don't know how, we don't know why, somehow he's being disciplined by God for his sin. That's verse 11. You discipline a man with rebukes for sin. That's what he's going through. He's being afflicted, and all the while he's depending on God and hoping in him. Verse 7, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Now in a moment we're going to get into the details of that section But for now, I'm just dipping over there to give us a little bit of our bearings as we understand this action scene, so to speak, right there in verse 1, going, "Mm, I wanted to say something, but I held my tongue. So we begin with David describing this, his intense resolve to guard his tongue and to stop his speech so that, in verse 1, he doesn't sin with his words. Uh, We know from verse 11, he is being afflicted. He's being uh, disciplined by God for some sin of his. God has ordained some kind of suffering for him, and he's hurting. Now, there are all sorts of ways that somebody might respond badly to this situation, especially with our words. 
Uh, David potentially might be in danger of cursing God and calling him a capricious and unjust ruler. Or he might just be complaining and grumbling as though God had forgotten him. And even without thinking about God at all, he may not even be consciously blaming God or thinking about God, but he might unwittingly make it look as though God doesn't care for his saints, those in covenant with him. The wicked are nearby, and he's going, um, and we don't know if the wicked are agents. They're involved in the action. Maybe they're people that God is using to afflict him, or maybe they're just bystanders. But either way, if David is not careful with his words, he's going, there's a great danger. I'll dishonor God in the presence of his enemies by the way I speak about him. So his solution at the beginning of verse 2 is to bottle it up. He's like, this is my policy. I'm not going to say anything. Verse 1 and 2, I'll muzzle my mouth. I was mute and silent. But that doesn't last long. It won't do. It only causes the steam to build up inside him as verses 2 and 3 continue. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. I think the image of steam building up in a vessel is very apt. It's like something's going to give, right? Something's got to go. And something about suffering and affliction just demands to be expressed. We need to vocalize it. We can't just suppress it and ignore it. And as soon as he opens his mouth, so verse 3 ends with, I spoke with my tongue, and then it begins the quote of what he says. When he opens his mouth in verse 4, we come to see that he's decided to um, take his words in a very healthy direction. It's actually a very good response. And this is what we looked at last week. Verses 4 to 6 are essentially a prayer that says, In the midst of painful discipline, Lord, help me to see my transience and smallness before you. In just a moment, we'll address that prayer a little bit more in the context of the whole psalm. But for now, just consider this opening action. Consider the wisdom of David's move here. And we can be honest about ourselves and think about times when we've suffered under the hand of God for some reason or another. When God is allowing painful and frustrating circumstances in our lives, our minds generate all sorts of thoughts that it might be tempting to vocalize. What is that inner voice saying? Is it engaged in self-justification? I'm in the right. I don't deserve this. I can't believe these people are treating me this way. Or I can't believe God would allow such a thing to happen to me. I don't deserve this. It's kind of self-justifying thoughts and words. Um, Is your heart engaged in blame? Is it generating words like God must be cruel or impotent or ignorant or else he would have never allowed this to happen to me? Or is it just complaining? Again, it may not even be about God directly. It could just be complaints. Not again. When it rains, it pours. It's always something. Why can I ever catch a break? And as our hearts generate these sinful patterns of thought, all of them are various expressions of unbelief against God. And sometimes these are the kinds of things that pop out of our mouths. Now, it might waft constantly and slowly like steam from a pot, or it might explode like a volcano. It might be something in between. But our words, as Jesus taught us, our words express our hearts. There's always the overflow of the activity of the heart that's being vocalized as we speak. And if it, as if it weren't bad enough that the speech that we might uh, let out in moments like this dishonors God directly, it also can dishonor him in the eyes of those who are near enough to catch the shrapnel of our complaints, the wicked or the righteous, whoever's around us. We just don't make God look good when we claim to know him and then go around complaining. What impression of God do you give to your non-believing neighbors, 
family members, coworkers, classmates, when you're going through affliction. But verses 2 and 3 are very real. Absolute silence is not realistic. It's not healthy. You can't just say, I'm not going to say anything. That'll, that'll solve the problem. What's the alternative? What's the healthy outlet? The first two words of verse 4. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. The solution is Godward. And as we'll see, it's not Godward in bitter complaint and accusation. It's Godward in an urgent plea for perspective, for mercy. It's Godward in its confession of sin and its dependence and hope in him. It's all Godward. Now, does that mean that there's never a time to talk with others about our afflictions? No, it doesn't mean that. That can be healthy. That can be necessary. But it is a warning to regulate our mouths with self-control that only comes from having a healthy channel of prayer with God. There's a self-control that this can beget when we have, when we have this sort of uh, conduit of communication with God. And without it, it's not going to come out well toward others. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, those he picked out to come with him, Peter, James, and John. And he's, he's deeply distressed as he stares down the agony of the cross And what does he say to his three friends? He doesn't hide the affliction he's going through. He says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Mark 14, 34. And then what does he do? Does he complain to them about the injustice, how he's going to be treated? He goes off alone and he prays and he prays and he prays. He pours out his soul to God the Father. And we don't know all of what he prays. He probably prays psalms like this. There's a lot of psalms about the righteous one suffering injustice and crying out to the Lord. I'll bet he prayed a lot of that. He pours out his soul to God, voicing his fear and anguish. We know that he asks if there's any other way, and we know that he finally resigns himself in trust to the God who will see him through the dark valley and raise him to glory. It's a reverence that will not accuse God. And it is a self-control that saves words for God alone that he alone should hear. And it's a zeal for his glory that jealously protects his reputation in the eyes of our neighbors. That's what's being modeled for us. So how do the godly respond to divine discipline? First, we guard our tongues and cry out to God. Secondly, recognize your vulnerability and hope in the Lord. This is verses 4 through 7. Recognize your vulnerability and hope in the Lord. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. As I just said, this prayer we saw in detail last week, verses 4 to 6 in particular, exemplifies a godly and wise way to get out of the bind of verses 1 to 3. I'm suffering. I feel like I have to say something. I don't want to vent my spleen before the wicked and make the Lord look bad. What do I do? I go to God himself. Say, Lord, help me to see how transient I am. Now, even if we recognize the, uh, the wisdom of going to the Lord in prayer in a situation like this, if this is a good response, 
this particular prayer might still surprise us. This is probably not what any of us would guess. We say, what, what do you ask God? What do you tell God when you're going through trials? Let me see how fleeting my days are. Why is this prayer such an apt response to what's going on? Why is this prayer such an apt response to suffering under God's hand of discipline? I think there are two reasons. The first has to do with the sin that led to discipline. And the second has to do with our response to that discipline. So the first reason why this is an apt prayer when we're being disciplined is that if God is disciplining us, it's because he sees sin in us, his adopted children, and he wants to deal with it. This is what discipline is. He's doing something constructive. In the words of John 15, if we're branches who are united to the vine Christ, he is pruning us to make us more fruitful. He's cutting things away to do good for us. He's purifying us like gold so that we shine brighter, even though it takes heat and fire. So one reason to pray like this is that the perspective described in verses 4 to 6 would guard us against sin. In other words, this is a prayer that's saying, Lord, clearly I have a sin problem. You're making that clear to me by events. Give me the perspective of myself relative to you that would make sin unattractive to my heart. Bring me down to my proper station. Break the spell that sin has on my heart right now. And whatever my sin is, somehow or another, I have elevated myself against you. So correct that error in my heart and, and restore me to a right self-perception. So that's why the sin that led to discipline makes this prayer appropriate. Now, why does our response to discipline also make this an appropriate prayer? It's because only with, with seeing our transience, seeing ourselves as weak creatures, only that gives us the sobriety and realism that we need to find quiet in the midst of suffering. And for an example of this, consider Job. Job in the Old Testament. Remember how he's suffering under God's hand. And suffering has the danger of squeezing out a bunch of self-justifying responses from us. Like Job, he didn't curse God. He didn't absolutely uh, go against God. But there's a lot of sort of self-justification. I'm right. I don't deserve this. A lot of seeking to explain what's God doing. Trying to, to understand God's hidden counsel. And what Job needed and what David here sees he needs is to see himself as small and to see God as big and therefore to be able to close his mouth and say I'm going to just let God be God I'm suffering things I don't understand how it all connects I don't understand uh, why God is doing this I'm just going to let God be God so when we see that we're being afflicted this is a wise prayer God help me to just remember I'm small to remember I'm a, a passing vapor and to let you be God. This is probably not a natural way we think in our afflictions to think this way. Lord, the Lord is disciplining me. I need to ask him for help to take this the right way. Namely, I need him to show me what a weak and small and vulnerable person I am so that the sin that got me here will stop appealing to me and so that I'll be guarded against the proud response to this suffering. But look at how Godward this all is. It's, it's, it's pointed to him. It's not complaining about him. It's looking to him. Saying, God, look at verse 6, this bold confession. You're the one I wait for. My hope is in you. So once we see how transient and small and weak we are, God begins to loom large 
as our refuge for safety. It's healthy to start feeling weak because we are, and then we see God and go, oh, I, I need, I really need you. My hope is you. My only hope is you. Uh, my wife and I recently rewatched the film Interstellar. Uh, it's a good movie. But we watched it again uh, last week. And there's a scene where the characters are hurtling through space in a rocket ship on a very, very long journey. And one of them is starting to become unnerved by this situation. And he's talking to another character and he's kind of saying, like, don't you ever... Does it ever bother you that we're, we're just separated from sort of the infinite dark cold of space by just like the few millimeters of the bulkhead of this spaceship? And it's, st- it's starting to kind of get to him. This is kind of a moment of two realizations to think about my personal weakness and my utter dependence. The sense of like, I really need this ship to, to work, <laughs> to hold up. And that's a wise response for our hearts toward God in our trials. I'm weak and transient. Oh, Lord, my hope is in you. You are my ship on this vast, stormy sea. You are my rocket in this deep, dark, cold of space. Without you, I shudder at the thought of how exposed and helpless I would be. Discipline is supposed to generate that heart response in us. Look at the softness of heart. This is not a sinner hardened against the Lord. This is a yielded son. I don't love my sin anymore. Whatever sin it is, we don't know what sin it is. I don't love it anymore. I don't want to be the boss anymore. I'm a weak, trembling little child. I'm just hoping in you. But there is some very good news settled in, uh, nestled into this confession of hope. And last week we looked at Jesus, the one who suffered human transience and a life during his life on earth that looked fruitless Um, And it looked like it was to no avail, but he yielded his life as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. Uh, And the effect of that, of course, is a fruit of salvation and praise for all eternity. And we looked at Isaiah 49, how he says, like, it's for nothing. It's in vain that I've spent my strength. And God says to him, no, it is to make you uh, a salvation to Jacob and a light to all the nations. And we looked at how that hope all hinges on the resurrection. Like if Jesus had just died and there was no resurrection, it would have been true. It would have been a fruitless death. But with the resurrection, it's a saving death. It's fruitful. And just as Jesus went ahead of us in resurrection, we who believe will follow, which is why, as we saw again, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, capping off this long discussion of the resurrection, Paul says, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain like Jesus. But while the resurrection hope, of course, is more explicit in those texts in the New Testament, We don't have to run off there to find any trace of it. Right here in seed form, in verse 7, we have a resurrection hope. Just think about it. To pray to God and say, God, I know I am a weak and fading creature. I'll be gone in an instant. I'm like a spark that just jumps up out of the fire. Yet, I hope in you. Yet, there is hope. Our transience and our mortality are very true, and these are essential bits of self-knowledge we need to know about ourselves, but it's not the end of the story. With God, there is hope, which is a forward-looking, confident expectation of good. With God, there's something bigger than time and death at play. And even though we are little puffs of air, we're little vapor, little breath, like last night or, you know, these nights are cold, you go outside and you breathe, you can see it, that's, that's our lives But still, there's certain hope in the hand of the Lord. And this is what Jesus bought for us in his new covenant as he shed his blood to secure this covenant with us. 
forgiveness and resurrection and glory and hope and an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So how do the godly respond to divine discipline? Recognize your vulnerability and hope in the Lord. Third, verses 8 through 11, accept God's affliction and plead for relief. Accept God's affliction and plead for relief. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. As I said earlier, these verses lay out kind of most plainly what's going on behind the psalm. The Lord is disciplining David somehow for his sin. He's rebuking him with chastening blows, which are not meant to uh, punish as vengeance, but to correct as love, as, as Greg talked about in equipping hour and in the context of parenting. And we heard about this in Hebrews chapter 12 when we read it a few moments ago. And so this means that David has two areas of need. He has two needs. The first need is, I need forgiveness and change from the sins that got me here. This is what he's talking about in the beginning of verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Okay, I'm being, my sin is being dealt with. So the first thing I need is, I need this sin problem to be dealt with. I need forgiveness and I need cleansing from this sin in my life. And secondly, verse 10, I need mercy and relief right now. He says, remove your stroke from me. Now what's implied in the plea for forgiveness and saying, please deliver me from my transgressions, it's also implied in verse 9, is that, Lord, you are right to do this. God, I have indeed sinned. I accept that. I agree with that. To say, I do not open my mouth. It's you who have done this. It's a way of saying, it's not, it's not a, he's not saying he's literally and absolutely silent. I mean, look, he's praying. He's writing a psalm. He's not saying there's no words coming out. It's a silence of acceptance. It's saying, I have no argument. I have no rejoinder. I have no self-justification. I have nothing to respond to you in protest, God. All I can say is, please root out the disease of sin that has brought all this mess upon me, and please stop these afflictions. Jesus will say in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the cry of one who's poor in spirit. Lord, you are right to do this. Lord, forgive me. Lord, cleanse me. Do your work. And God, make it stop. There is a big difference between making demands of God and making pleas for mercy. Please give me relief is a very different prayer. It's worlds apart from how dare you. God, how dare you do this to me? <coughs> Crying out for relief is godly. And it does not contradict the silence of humility and resignation. They're both happening. It's amazing. They're in consecutive verses. One verse says, um, I am mute. I have nothing to say. And the next verse says, please remove your stroke. We're going to go somewhere with our cries. Remember, that's not in question. We're going to go somewhere. We can't hold it in. The questions are, where will we go and what will we say? Will we grumble? Will we slander God in the hearing of the wicked? No. Let this be our resolve in 2024 and forever after in this life. 
while we're going through afflictions, we will cry out to the Lord for mercy. That's where we will go when we're afflicted. We will go to the Lord for mercy with soft hearts. And while we cry out to the Lord and we're beset, as we often are in these situations, with uncertainty and confusion, especially regarding the circumstances, things like how long will this last? What will this ultimately end up costing me? We can be utterly certain about this, that God has made every provision in Christ for the pardon and cleansing of our sin. That is not in question. It's not like, is God going to forgive me? No, in Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God has already made the provision in Christ for our sin. And for all who believe in Jesus, God has answered a permanent yes to every prayer of confession and every plea for pardon that we will ever make. Jesus Christ shed his blood to ransom us from sin's penalty. And after rising from the dead, he ascended to heaven and sent his spirit to deliver us from the power of sin and to renew us into his likeness. So he has answered and he is answering yes to that prayer, deliver me from all my transgressions. But that doesn't mean that the discipline and the trials will go away quickly. And that doesn't mean that we don't plead to God for help. But it means that as we're pleading to God and as we're seeking him to help, uh, to modify the words of the hymn, we know he has broken the power of canceled sin. He has set the prisoner free. His blood has made the foulest clean, and his blood avails and will continue to avail for me. It's interesting also in verse 8 when he says, Do not make me the scorn of the fool. This plea for relief does also have to do with our reputation among others. Now, the Bible elsewhere warns us against the sin of, of the fear of man, which is caring too much what others think of us rather than God. Uh, seeing humans and their opinion and, and what they think as very big, and then we lose sight of God and, and the fear of the Lord. So that's a sin, that's a danger. But on the other hand, shame is public. And part of God's affliction might be that he allows us to experience reproach and shame in the eyes of others. And that is a real cost. That is a real affliction. And it's also entirely appropriate to cry out, for relief from that too. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Take away my reproach. There's an acknowledgement here that our transgressions do open us up to shame in the eyes of those who don't fear the Lord. And that's another dimension of suffering that we have to wait on the Lord to deliver us from. That might be a part of what God ordains in his discipline of you. Now verse 11 gives us more insight into what form this discipline might take. You consume like a moth what is dear to the one that you're disciplining. Now, again, we don't know what's in view. We don't know what exactly uh, affliction brought this, this comment about, this psalm about. It's put in general terms so it can be helpful to us in all kinds of situations. But it could be so many things that the Lord strikes against to discipline us. It could be our health. It could be our earthly goods and wealth. It could be our reputation in the sight of others, as we just mentioned. And these are all good things, but in order to humble us and to draw our hearts away from sin, God will sometimes melt them away from under us, and they'll dissolve into nothing. Have you ever tried to grab a moth? They can't withstand very much contact. You might just end up with a cloud of dust and a, a dead moth if you try to grab a moth. They, they're not very sturdy creatures. And it's saying like, it's like that, poof, all, all our stuff. God can melt away our, our temporal goods in this life in order to set our hearts on what's permanent. 
Sometimes God will melt the ice we're standing on so that we'll move on to solid ground. Remember in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us that we are either laying up treasures in er on earth or we're laying up treasures in heaven. And he warns us there in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So sometimes God's gracious discipline takes the form of bankrupting our earthly treasuries so that we can reinvest while there's still time. He might consume like a moth what's dear to you in this life for your greater good. So how do the godly respond to divine discipline? They accept God's affliction and plead for relief. Fourth and finally, how the godly respond to divine discipline in verses 12 and 13 is, fear the Lord and choose him over the world. Fear the Lord and choose him over the, the world. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This psalm closes with, with a final cry for mercy, and it uses in verse 12 the image of a sojourner. What is a sojourner? It's someone who lives in a land that's not his own with the expectation that his stay there is only temporary. I don't belong here. I'm, I live here for just a while. It's like the patriarchs in Genesis who dwelled in God's land of promise in tents because he hadn't yet delivered on that promise. The land wasn't yet theirs. But even centuries later in the promised land, David says, God, I'm a sojourner. He's not contrasting one piece of earth with another. He's contrasting earth from heaven. He's contrasting the present age with the one to come. And Hebrews 11 tells us that this sojourner identity that the patriarchs lived anticipates the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Or in other words, a better country that is a heavenly one. When, the, when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are called sojourners, it's not just because they're waiting for Canaan to belong to the nation of Israel. Ultimately, they're waiting for heaven to be their present possession the city that is to come. And that's precisely the way that our psalmist calls himself a sojourner. He is a stranger on this earth. I mean, he's a king with a kingdom. But he's saying, I'm a stranger on this earth waiting for God's kingdom to come in full. He's waiting for heaven to merge with earth. He's waiting for the new Jerusalem to come down out of heaven like a resplendent bride. That will be home. I'm a citizen of heaven where you, God, are the king. And in this world, I'm a mere passing breath. And my dear, dearest treasures in this world are as feeble as moths. They're as feeble as I am. And with your discipline, God, you have rebuked my sin. You've reminded me of my place. You've sobered me and restored me to my right mind about myself and my place. And so in view of all these things, I confess I am yours, God. I don't belong to this world. I belong to you. That's why I need you. That's why I cry out to you. I have no other recourse. Hear my prayer because you are all I have. So when he says in verse 13, look away from me, that's kind of paradoxical. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Look away from me. What's going on? Didn't he just say in verse 12, hey, don't ignore me. Look, look, look here. Don't hold your peace. Well, these are two different kinds of looks. 
Look away in your anger, but look toward me in your favor. This is what both of these responses articulate what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. It is a God-centered attitude that says the one thing that really matters above all else is God. If he's against me in anger, I am doomed. I have nothing. If he's with me in favor, I have hope. I have everything. That's, the, that's what the fear of the Lord says. The one thing that matters is God. And how is God disposed toward me? Now, we know that God doesn't ultimately turn against his people, those who are justified in Christ by faith. We have in his blood an unbreakable covenant bond with the triune God. It's not as though our actual status with God is is fluctuating. But in discipline, in a sense, he can turn an angry face toward his people. Even at the beginning of the previous psalm, Psalm 38, 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And then he goes on to describe how that's happening. There can be a sense of an angry face toward God's people. And as a creature who rightly understands his vulnerability, he says, God, I can't handle much of this. Give me relief. Don't, don't look at me that way. This is the fear of the Lord. God is always the biggest issue. If we're suffering affliction for our sin, he did it. So we'd better pay close attention to what he's doing. And if we want relief, he gives it. So we'd better cry out to him. It's always about God. I love this phrase, given how he says, look away from me, verse 13. I love this phrase in verse 12. I'm a sojourner with you. It tells us how to read verse 13. Verse 13 is not like a a frightened child yelling, stay away to a drunk, angry, out of control father. That is not what's going on in verse 13. The relational context of verse 13 is, I'm yours, God. I want to be with you. Again, you're my hope. You're my ship on the stormy sea. You're my stone fortress in the battle. So please turn your anger away from me and show me your favor again. I'm with you and you're with me. Brothers and sisters, we are sojourners. This this world does not have what we need. Everything that it offers us is as transient and weak as we are. And the Lord strikes us with discipline to keep us moving on in our sojourn. To keep us from being like Lot and settling down in false refuges like Sodom. He wants us moving, ever moving on toward the permanent city that has foundations that is yet to come. So we've been confronted this morning with the uncomfortable reality that God disciplines his children. He does it in love to purify our lives from the sin that Jesus has already paid for on the cross. And in Psalm 39, we've seen four ways that the godly respond to this divine discipline. We guard our tongue and cry out to God. We recognize our vulnerability and hope in the Lord. We accept God's affliction and plead for relief. And we fear the Lord and choose him over the world. And again, I'll reiterate, these are resolutions that we ought to make now. These are patterns that we will begin forming Day by day in the little afflictions, we're always dealing with kind of little things at least. And we can begin forming patterns in our lives so that they've already become developed habits when the big ones come. We have this kind of Godward habit with all of our afflictions. So next time something goes wrong, which will be today, (laughs) smile and and realize God is giving you practice. Be vulnerable and cry out to him for help. 
Lord, teach me through this to love you and to love what's permanent more than I love what's fading away and more certainly than I love sin. Reorient my loves toward you and toward what's permanent through even this little thing that gets me. Now, if this morning you don't know God as your God, you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you are in a very different situation. Because for you, God's afflictions are not loving correction, but wrath. He strikes you not as a son who's being prepared to inherit eternal glory. He strikes you as an enemy whose back is turned against him. Now, that is a world of difference. Do you want to know God as your own? Do you want the relational freedom to cry out to him in the afflictions of this life, knowing he hears you? I know you walk through afflictions. I know you suffer too, non-Christian. Your life is hard too. Do you want to walk through these things knowing the certain hope that God is your refuge as you suffer? That hope can be yours today. All you have to do is recognize in your heart that God is right. Like the psalmist, God is right to call you a transgressor. Agree with his assessment of you. God, you're right to afflict me in judgment. But also to recognize that he's given his son for your redemption if you'll only trust him. To lean on Christ today. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your loving correction. We don't always have a heart of gratitude in the moment. We struggle, we chafe. We have so many emotions and thoughts that arise, and you know that. And we pray that we would be people who learn the art of self-control, not just out of uh, self-mastery, but uh, by having the habit of going to you and pleading for mercy with soft hearts and finding in you the strength and the hope that we need to undergo afflictions. We pray that we would indeed go through hard things in a way that glorifies you in the eyes of those around us, even in a way that astounds them, that people could have such hope in the midst of even uh, awful suffering. We pray that you'd prepare us for whatever's ahead for each of us. I don't know what 2024 has for each one in, our, in, our, in this room, in our hearing. We know that as life goes on one way or another, sooner or later, we all go through very, very hard afflictions. And it's used in your hand to make us more like Christ. We pray that even now you'd be preparing our souls for it. Preparing us to go to you in everything. To fear you. To see ourselves as sojourners with you in this world. We thank you for Jesus who not only paid for our sins and canceled the debt against us, but who also models for us that perfect humanity that looks to you prayerfully submissively reverently help us to walk in his footsteps by the power of the spirit that he's given and please if any in this room don't know christ we pray that a right understanding of their vulnerability before you would drive them to your mercy drive them to seek refuge in the cross of christ to trust in him alone and it's in his name we pray amen